Amen. You may be seated and welcome to worship. Oh, that's what we're doing here, by the way. We are continuing to agree with one another, stack hands, unite hearts, join minds, and declare the excellencies of who our God is, what he is like, what he has done, and who he has declared us to be. We call that salvation. This morning, I want to talk about salvation. It's one of those churchy words we hear a whole lot, but it might be one of the most ill-defined terms in the church in the 20th century. For the last couple hundred years, the church in the Western world really sort of made a big deal about an individual's personal and sometimes private salvation. When did you get saved? Have you been saved? Tell me about your salvation experience. What does it mean to be saved which is really unique and rare because for the first 1,800 years or so of the church, nobody talked that way. It was simply you were a part of a community called a church, and if you attended somewhat regularly, you were in. But about 200 years ago, people started saying things like, hey, just because you're in my garage does not make you a pickup. There has to have been something that actually happened, something marvelous, mysterious, and massive that happened in you to have you be saved. Have you been saved? Well, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about salvation. Candidly, I have discovered in the 21st century what most people mean, maybe not fully orbed theologically, but what they mean practically and day by day is they mean, I am a Christian, and when I go to heaven, I will be with Jesus when I die. Like, that's it. But that is a completely foreign idea to the Bible. The Bible's telling us that salvation means a whole lot more than that, and it's really good news. That the gospel says that God has redeemed us to himself and to one another in this life. So salvation, I would like for us to almost rethink it a little bit. It's not about dying and going to heaven one day. It is life with God. It is life for God, not life in rough proximity to some people who might know some some things about God. It is life with God. And here's the shocking scandal of the cosmos. It is what God desires more than anything else. Now, most of us at some level don't really believe that. Either we think differently of God, that he's, he's too busy, he's distracted, he's disinterested, he's disappointed, or he's not really that much aware of my personal situation and circumstance, or that he's really not that good or that I'm damaged goods and he doesn't want to have actual proximity and relationship with me. Well, I think when we in the 21st century, in the Western world, really get a grasp of what salvation really means, it's life-changing, it's converting, it is literally transformative. Even for people who have called themselves Christians since right after Noah got off the boat, So this morning, as we talk about salvation, our big idea goes like this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm not making any deep theological, uh, galvanizing, polarizing statement with that. This is coming right out of Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to the minor prophet of Jonah and Jonah chapter 2. If you can't find it, you have to learn the song. Hosea Joel, Amos Obadiah, Jonah. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, 
I can't find the minor prophets unless I sing, sing the song. If you can't sing the song, just, there's a YouTube for that. Trust me. Turn to the prophet Jonah, a little four-chapter book. It's a minor prophet, not because it's not important, because there's simply less content therein. Last week, we kicked it off when we walked all the way through chapter one. Now, there's a whole lot of press and attention given to the book of Jonah because there is something marvelous and miraculous that happens. Perhaps you've heard of it. A prophet of God gets swallowed by a great fish. But that's only about 25% of the book. The rest of this narrative prophetic book is about so much more. It's actually about a God who is gracious, a prophet, a professional preacher, pastor, who is graceless, I know some of those, and a relentless mission to reach the nations with the love of God. And so our working series theme for these four weeks in the book of Jonah goes like this, God's relentless grace. God's relentless grace. He will never stop pursuing what C.S. Lewis called, he is the hound of heaven. Now, just a little bit of background in case you weren't here last week or in case you've slept since then. Remember that Jonah is a prophet from the north. He's ministering around 760 BC. He's ministering during the kingship of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was a very bad dude, set up all kinds of counterfeit worship instances in the northern part of the country. He was trying to fend off the emerging imperialist empire that was the Assyrians. And so Jonah actually prophesies to Jeroboam II in 2 Kings 14 and says, hey, despite all of your error, God's going to do something great. He's going to expand your borders to match those that will be equivalent to the time of Solomon. An amazing thing. And it goes really well. And the hearts of the people swell and nationalism and patriotism and Gadsden flags come and take it are all over Israel. Everyone's so excited. So Joshua, or so, so Jonah is kind of, a, kind of a big deal. In the face of all this opposition from all sides, he's prophesied, and what he said came true. People trust him. They like him. They respect him. He's from a little town called Gath Hefer in the tribal area of Zebulun, which is in the land of Galilee, so way up in the north. This book is fascinating because Jesus gives us an interpretive clue that Jonah himself is representative of the nation of Israel. He's a person, but he is representative of what's going on with the entire covenant community, the messianic people that is the nation of Israel, who they were, what they were doing, how they were supposed to have conducted themselves in the world, and how they failed. God has always been a God who sends. He sent them out of the garden to go and identify the garden. He sent Noah to go out and subdue and remake the world after the flood. He sent and he sent and he sent and he sent the nation of Israel to be a light of God's love and language for all the world. And time after time, Israel will fail at their purvey of being a nation of priests. And so Jonah is going to be emblematic or a microcosm of all of Israel. In fact, the book of Jonah is sort of a microcosm of the entire Bible. It's got it all. God, people, sin, judgment, Savior. And that's the cycle we see in every one of the prophetic books over and over and over again. It's a historical count. It's a narrative count. There's only one tiny bit of prophetic pronouncement in the entire book of Jonah. It's in chapter 3, verse 4. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the only oracle language you see. The rest of it is a narrative. Not even so much about Jonah. It's more about God himself. He is the main character. Well, 
I believe that this actually happened despite the miracle. It doesn't matter what I think about it. Jesus was convinced that the story of Jonah actually occurred, and he referenced it a couple times. Now, last week, we walked through chapter 1, and we saw that Jonah, a professional, preacher, pastor, prophet of God, who had a good track record and a good reputation, he runs. God calls him to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, which is east-northeast, 550 miles. Instead, Jonah goes down, down, down. He hops a ship and tries to sail for Spain, 2,500 miles away. God intervenes. And a series of miracles are going to kick off. Jonah is in the middle of a storm. The sailors are freaking out. You might remember this. They decide to pull out the dice and play Yahtzee. The roll falls to Jonah. They say, hey, who are you? What have you done? What is going on here? And he confesses, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And they say, you could have told us that a little while ago. He says, you're going to have to throw me in, which, by the way, he could have thrown himself in. He still disdains these people, these Gentiles, these people who are outside the covenant of Yahweh. He's better than them because of his nationality, his ethnicity, his race. Come on, do I have to really deal with these lesser thans? Ultimately, he does tell them that they're going to have to throw him in the water. They do, and immediately the water goes glass. And as Jonah began to sink, God sends something miraculous, a great fish, Hebrew, dag. It could be a whale, it could be a fish, it could be a whale shark, it could have been the biggest lobster of all time. I have no idea. It just says a big sea fish. That's all we know. And that was the cliffhanger that we got left last week at the end of chapter one. So I'm gonna read chapter two straight through. It's very short, it's only 10 verses. And then we're gonna unpack it and see how we apply it. Jonah chapter two. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What a story. This is God's word. We can't read too much in that first word, then Jonah prayed. The word then isn't technically there. In the Hebrew text, it's simply, and Jonah prayed. So we can't really use that to know about the time stamping. Had he been in there for hours, minutes, moments, seconds, day and a half, we really don't know. All we know is that he was in there and he prays and Jonah prayed. And remember, Jonah was a prophet. His name means dove. And as his, a prophet, He's supposed to be in constant communion, constant contact, constant communication with God to hear and distribute the word of God. 
He's supposed to be living the life of salvation, life with God, never off the clock, life with God, life for God. But he's tried to run from God. He hadn't spoken to God or heard from God in quite some time, and so he was disintegrating. (laughs) You ever been there? You may be there right now. We talked about this last week, that sin is moving God out of the center of your life and trying to place anything in that space begins the process of implosion and erosion and disintegration. He'd attempted to abandon God because God wanted him to do something he didn't want to do. But of course, there was nowhere he could go that God was not present. He had abandoned the presence or the face of God, the communion, the connection, the relationship. And while it was an egregious act that Jonah hears from God and Jonah says, no, like a petulant child from Yahweh, the creator of the cosmos, he says no, and he runs away. We get no indication that Jonah ever stops to think what this did to God. Oh, God's God, he's God, he's God, he's God. He can handle it. Is it fine with you when your child just runs away? No, it would cleave your very soul. It's fine with you when a parent leaves or when a child leaves or a spouse leaves. No, it it cleaves your very soul. But that didn't really even occur to Jonah because he was thinking incompletely or incorrectly about this God. The passages of Scripture help us to think more fully orbed about this God. But now he prays to the Lord, Yahweh, his God. He is now in the belly of the fish, reintegrating. And he's in this context, this fish or whale or whale shark or whatever. And it's such an important message. It's such an important image that Jesus didn't want the Pharisees to miss it in his day. And this text does not want us to miss it. So I'm going to say this with a high degree of confidence. I make no apology for it. I'm going to say this dogmatically. This story of Jonah in the belly of the fish is the greatest picture of salvation in your Bible. That's a bold claim. It's okay. Bring it. I know there's other great pictures of salvation in your Bible. There's the images of the Passover. There's the images of Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac and all those things, so many others. But this is the greatest picture of salvation and what the believer is like. Every single one of us, if you are a believer, have in a sense been in the belly of the beast. Now right there, some of you may be going, whoa, 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 I'm a believer. I've never rebelled against God and pursued a gross immoral lifestyle. Well, Neither had Jonah. He was a professional religion. He was professional at it. He had rebelled against God and was going the opposite direction because he thought he was better than others. He was religious. In fact, he's one of the most religious people at at the time anywhere in the world. He finds himself in the belly of a fish. I don't know if you've thought about this. Quite literally in the fetal position. He finds himself in this cramped space. I don't know how big it was in there. We know there's different species of whale sharks and sperm whales that can actually have plenty of room in there for a human being. We know they're in 1891 near the Falkland Islands. A guy named James Blarkey was literally swallowed by a whale. They killed the whale, they dug him out, and that was weird for James. Strange day at the office. So it is possible 
but he's cramped in there. It's very much like being in the womb. There you are, very tight. It's hot. It's dark. It can't smell amazing. And yet it is the precise place and the context in which God has his provision and his protection and his purpose on Jonah, just like a mother does for her child. You might remember the story in the New Testament in John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus, under the cover of darkness, comes to talk to Jesus. That's why we call it Nick at night. (laughs) Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus, and Jesus tries to explain to him salvation. And he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, remember the Sanhedrin, Israel's teacher, very learned fellow, goes, what, really? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And I think in the mind of Jesus, he says, not exactly, but think of Jonah, who in a very real sense entered the womb a second time with no other option for escape, completely encased, utterly helpless, with nothing left to his life but the thought in his head and the air in his lungs. He's utterly hopeless. He's utterly helpless. He has absolutely no other way of escape, and his only option is to recognize his condition and to call out to God for rescue. That is salvation. And it establishes the differences between the three kinds of people in the world. Do you know there's really only three? Only three kinds of people in the world. First, there are the atheistic people, uh, these people who are fundamentally and foundationally they do not believe that they are in need of rescue whatsoever. They are, have sometimes been called the irreligious. And I don't really love that term because we say all, all around here all the time, everybody is religious. Religion simply means you're organizing narrative. What is the story that you believe that you build your life around? The atheist, the uh, utterly agnostic, have no real belief yet that they're in any need of rescue whatsoever. They're just fine on their own, thank you very much. And despite making occasional mistakes, because nobody's perfect, they don't need salvation from anything. But that wasn't Jonah. Jonah didn't have to be convinced that he needed rescue. Now, as I'm saying these, there's three different kinds of people. The first is the atheistic or the irreligious, completely devoid of, of pursuing a life of faith. You've probably got friends or family members or mortal enemies or office mates or neighbors that fit into that category. And as the morning progresses, I want you to pray for them. That God would move irresistibly in their life and make it plain that they are, in fact, of need of rescue. That's the first kind of a person, the the atheistic or the irreligious. The second person, these are religious people that operate on a legalistic, merit-based approach because they recognize that they need rescue in a sense, but they believe that it is up to them to achieve it. So the atheistic person, it's all about performance. I don't know about all those things I've got to do to to earn salvation because I don't need it, but there are some standards of culture and society that I've got to at least attain to. It's all about performance. The second group are the religious. I know I'm in need, I need rescue from, from eternal whatever, and so it's about my performance. I have to do all of the things to try to earn points in that system of faith. That's every other form of religion. It's Islam, it's Hinduism, it's Buddhism, it's Orthodox Judaism, and even some adherents of Roman Catholicism. It's all of that. Jonah did not have to be convinced that there was nothing he could do to save himself. He knew 
There was no performance whatsoever that was going to save him from where he was. So the first kind of person, irreligious or atheistic. Second kind of person, legalistic and religious. The third kind of person, Christian. And that's all there is in the world. A Christian is a person that recognizes their need of rescue and they call out to appeal to God's mercy and grace, trusting that he can and has provided all that is needed. And this is precisely what Jonah does. He is the perfect picture of salvation in your Old Testament. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly or the womb from which he was about to be reborn back into a new world and into a new life. Let me read Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. Saying, this is how he prayed, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, what follows in Jonah 2, verses 2 through 9, is a psalm. It's not called a psalm, it's called Jonah 2. But it's absolutely written in the form and the format of a psalm. There are 12 psalms of thanksgiving in our Psalter, in the inspired hymn book of Israel. 12 of those 150 are thanksgiving songs, and they all share the exact same format, and this is that. I like to call Jonah 2, Psalm 151. It's perfect. Now, there are a couple other instances of psalm-like material in your Old Testament. There is the indication that Hannah, in 1 Samuel 2, when she gives thanksgiving for the birth of her son Samuel, she sings forth in a psalm-like verse. In the same way, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, is saved from his disease, and he sings forth a psalm-like thanksgiving of praise in Isaiah 38. Well, Jonah, in the belly of a fish, cries out, and in his mind, it is this poetry. Clearly, he prays this in the belly of the fish. I don't think he writes it down until after he's out. Because that's just really, talk about writer's cramp. I mean, that's, that's just tough, all right? So clearly, he's thinking through this. And after he's out, he writes this down. But can I just tell you, as I was listening to us sing this morning and go through our confession, our assurance, take communion, sing doxology, I love the, the catechism, you might say, of, of creating deep, ruts and roots of memory so that people, not if, but when they enter a season of wilderness, the things that are true begin to gush forth. And God uses that because of his indwelling spirit. He calls to mind the Psalms. Jonah was a prophet. He would have known the Psalter. We looked at chapter one. We clearly see that he is talking about the omnipresence of God from Psalm 139. And so Jonah here, remembering his time of worship when he was living life with God and for God, he utters forth this psalm-like expression. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I don't know what you believe about God, but hear and receive the gospel. Jonah is in about as bad a situation as you can possibly be. He's literally been ingested by a fish. He's at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. The acoustics down there are bad. And he, crawl, he cries out. And God, the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the cosmos, hears him. No other deity can make that claim and be honest because there are none. And if there were, they wouldn't be like this one. He hears. He answered me 
out of the belly of Sheol, that's a euphemism for the grave or the land of death, I am heading down and I am losing consciousness. I am about to be dead. I cried, and you heard my voice. That is doing good theology. Jonah says, you are the kind of God who hears, who heeds, and who helps. And that's the kind of God I am persuaded exists. That's the kind of God I am persuaded loves me and is for me. And Jonah is going through change. You can see the progression take shape. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. I'm pretty sure it was the sailors and I'm pretty sure it was Jonah's bad choices that got him there. Yes, what men intended for evil, God superintends for good and for his glory. Ultimately, Jonah says, I realize you're going to get done what you're going to get done and you are actually behind all of this. Why would I ever run again? And I've asked myself that question about 10 million times because I still do. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. I'm feeling the depths crush me under the weight of my guilt and my shame. Verse four, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So Jonah has confessed that he's gotten himself into this mess, and yet that God is sovereign and God is listening. Jonah's not in charge of anything. Verses four to seven are very interesting. They're using some very interesting imagery. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. That's odd. Hold that thought. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I don't think he was weaving himself a sombrero. I think he's talking about the deeps of the water. And he's either talking about as he fell and fell and fell into the deeps of the med, He's going through sea vegetation, or perhaps while he's in the fish, he's wrapped up in seaweed that's, I don't know, been half digested. Gross, gross, gross. I have no idea. It's not good. Verse six, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is just the barely cognizant, barely conscious, barely aware notion that this is where I die. This is it. I'm all out of options. Yet, You brought up my life from the pit. That's a euphemism for the grave. Oh, Lord, my God. You can see the progression as Jonah's walking through this. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Oh, yeah, Yahweh. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, isn't that strange? It's interesting language. You would think, Jonah, in this psalm type of verse, he would say, I looked to you, and I saw you, and I heard your voice. But no, Jonah was a prophet. He knew his theology. He knew what God was like. He has to look to the temple. He doesn't actually see the temple. So he's probably looking to the temple in heaven in his mind and remembering the temple in Jerusalem in his heart. Why? Why there? Because Jonah knows that he is guilty and gross. He's no different than all of the people he was called to witness to and to preach to. He knows that somebody or something has to pay for his sin, and that's the temple. The temple was this beautiful building that was absolutely disgusting and gross when they conducted sacrifice. Something innocent had to die for the sake of the guilty, and it was violent, and it was bloody, and it was ghastly. And so it is there 
Jonah is confessing his faith. I look to there. That's where you will provide the thing that will take away my sin and you will redeem and you will rescue and you will restore. This is salvation. And Jonah is saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm not bringing anything to this but my own guilt and my own shame. He looks to the temple, the place where God can and will remove sin. Now, verse eight is the pivot. It's very, very subtle when we translate this into English, but verse eight is where you can see Jonah's mind radically change. He says in verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols. Literally, vain idols here is empty nothings. Just empty nothings. It's subtle when he says this. Those who pay regard are, well, who's he talking about? He's talking about the people of Nineveh that are idolaters. He's talking about the sailors from Phoenicia that are idolaters and people who don't have Yahweh as their God. And now he identifies with them. The very people that he disdained, verse eight, it's subtle, I know, but it's right in there. He now identifies with them. Those who cling to vain idols, empty nothings, he says in verse 8, forsake the hope of steadfast love. He's not thinking about them anymore. He's thinking about himself and that he's just like them. An idol is anything that exists in the central place that has been reserved for God. And when they do that, they do something horrible. And we all do it. Whether it's ambition whether it's being driven by the pursuit of pleasure, whether it's being driven by money or security and safety, when we place anything that's an empty nothing in the center of our lives, that is sin. And that is what begins to implode us and disintegrate us. But here's what's fascinating. Verse eight is glorious. Those who cling to empty nothings, to vain idols, the text in the ESV says, forsake their hope of steadfast love. Cute, good, Mm, noble effort. No. It's a psalm. The ESV misses the fact that this is a psalm of thanksgiving. The word steadfast love is chesed. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in Psalm 139. Chesed means loving kindness. Here it is a euphemism for God himself. Those who cling to empty nothings forsake God. He's saying, God, not only do you hear me, not only do you respond, you, I name you, Loving kindness, that's who you are. And I don't deserve your loving kindness. Psalm 139, or sorry, Psalm 136, we said that God is loving kind. It's one of his attributes. And here Jonah names him loving kindness. Those who cling to empty nothings forsake the one who is loving kindness. But wait, there's more. You can see his radical transformation. I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian. There were no Christians back then. I'm saying he was a believer, yes, but it is a persistent process that Jonah is in because he's run from God. And he says, those who cling to idols like the Ninevites or the, the Phoenician sailors or, or me, a Jew, a professional preacher, we forsake chesed, the covenant-keeping love of God. That's how God identifies himself. I am Yahweh. The covenant-keeping name of God is Yahweh. And he gives chesed, the covenant-keeping love, the steadfast love, the loving kindness, the unbreakable mercy. And so Jonah says, I and 
they are the same. All of us are on equal footing, meaning on our backs in desperate need of grace and mercy. Well, then the central verse, verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Before I get there, this might seem familiar to you, and it's intended to. At the end of chapter 1, you've got some pagans, some Gentiles, the nations, and they're on the boat, and they throw Jonah over, and immediately the water goes glassy calm. What do they do? They praise, and they sacrifice, and they offer vows. In the belly of the fish, Jonah goes through the exact same experience. A right and a regular recognition of God produces the proper posture. I will make sacrifice. It's a little snug in here. Can't move my arms. Uh, there's something moving on my left foot. I don't know what that is, but I, but I will make sacrifice. I will praise, and I will keep my vows. What are his vows? He had apparently told God, yeah, sure, God, I'll go to Nineveh, and he was gone. You ever had a kid like that? Clean your room. Yes, I'll clean my room, and then they're in the backyard. Hypothetically, just say it. I will keep my vows just as the pagans, the nations, the Gentiles had done. Jonah is numbered among them. There is nobody more or less worthy of God's salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I would assert that that little expression at the end of verse 9 is the central statement in the book. And when I say the book, I mean the Bible. Everything between the table of contents and the maps hinges on that phrase. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Everything before, everything since points to this is the God who saves. This is who he is. This is what he's like. And it just gets better. We get to see God's grace. Jonah, for the first time, really gets the concept of grace, which is part of the ingredients that goes into the casserole of salvation. Grace is God's unmerited favor as an unobligated giver. See, the sailors started to understand his unmerited favor, but they didn't know much about God as an unobligated giver. It's here, though, that Jonah understands that God owes him nothing just because he was Jewish, just because he was a prophet, just because he was a professional, just because he was religious and pretty productive in his role. No, grace is God's unmerited favor as an unobligated giver. It's just who he is. It's just what he's like. And if that kind of God exists, and he does, it's right there in his name, then he is worth all of my heart's affection and all of my mind's attention and all of my body's affectations. To know that that kind of God exists and to not worship him is to crucify one's own intellect. And it creates all sorts of contradictions and collisions of the soul for which we have a multi-trillion dollar therapy industry. Well, verse 10, some pretty great things here. And the Lord spoke to the fish. Did you know God speaks fish? I don't know. I don't know how that goes. The Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish did not apparently go, I'm sorry, what was that? You got a weird accent, God. No, the fish, check, got it, understood, and the Lord spoke to the fish. I love that. Like, how come a fish can understand and I can't? You ever been convicted that fish speak God, but not so much me? 
Yeah. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish went to Spain. No, the fish did exactly what he was told. Smart fish. And the fish vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I don't know how much success you've ever had in trying to train up a fish. They don't, uh, they don't respond real well. God didn't train him. He just spoke, and the fish did precisely what he was told to do. Now, in chapters 1 and 2, there have been a grand total of seven miracles take place so far. Yes, the big one is that there was a fish that swallowed Jonah, but that's not true. The even bigger miracle is the repentance, the turning, the conversion of a human heart. But I will tell you, what the fish does is pretty cool. This fish protected Jonah, and presumably, the fish has to go on a three-day fast and not open his mouth, because if he opens his mouth, it's going to get really crowded and bad in there. So apparently the fish is just like, <laughs> and somehow the fish is maybe praising God for gills. I don't know. But this fish does precisely what God wants him to do. He didn't eat anything after he ate Jonah. It had gotten really crowded in there. It takes him back to dry land. Well, where would that be? Well, there's really only one place on the coast of the Mediterranean that it could be, Joppa the same place that, jo that Jonah tries to run, God brings him right back, safe and sound. The depths of the sea do not harm or crush Jonah because he's in the womb. It must have been a terrifying confines, but God used it to protect him and to transport him. He vomits him up on the land. I just wish I could have been one of those bystanders. There you are on the beach, you're fishing, and all of a sudden, whoosh, right? Free Willy washes up on the shore and birches out a dude like, Edna? And you know what you just imagine? He smelled super fresh after being in there for three days. I mean, woo. But what do we take away from this Psalm 151, this Jonah chapter 2, that salvation belongs to the Lord? Let me just quickly apply this, and then we'll land the plane. Number one goes like this. Jonah's insides matter more than the fish's insides. Okay. Jonah's insides matter more than the fish's insides. Often with this story of Jonah, it's easy to get wrapped up in all the language of the depths of the sea and the bars of the earth and the roots of the mountains and all those things. Try to focus and figure out exactly what was going on inside that fish. How did it smell? How hot was it? Probably 104 degrees. I looked this up. Ew, you thought it's hot here in Tyler. Yeah, I would try being in a fish. How hot was it? Could he see? Could he move? Was he able to breathe? Did he actually eat and drink anything in there? Ew! I, I don't know. It's not really surprising that the text doesn't tell us anything about that. What's going on inside Jonah is really what we're being told about. It's a lot more important than what's going on inside the fish. The point is that you and I still tend to focus more on our circumstances and our surroundings and our context than on what's going on inside of us, our heart and our soul and our mind. When you come home at the end of the day and you complain to your spouse, hey, honey, it's a lot of traffic, it's a lot of heat, the humidity's high, that preacher at downtown campus won't shut up, all the things, how often do you just kvetch about the own depravity deep within your soul? It's what Jonah was forced to face, was what was going on inside of him more than what was going on inside the fish. We really aren't ever going to be all that impactful at changing whatever circumstances or context or even community that we're in that we think is a problem or a nuisance or a frustration. And chances are God might actually be using some of those things to bring about change in each and every one of us. He loves us so much that he will use any and all avenues. So check your insides, Jonah, not just what's going on with the fish. Secondly, 
Salvation is an event and a process. Let me quickly nuance and clarify. There is certainly a point in time when we are saved. And for the rest of our lives, we're being saved. And ultimately, Paul says in Ephesians, we will be saved. Salvation is an event and a process in which we are brought into a right relationship with God. And it takes a lifetime to occur. There's a reason you aren't immediately raptured into heaven at your conversion. There would be too much of you that just gets ripped off. It can't inherit the imperishable. Jonah had been in a right relationship with God, but then he rebelled and he fell out of fellowship with God. I'm not saying that he lost his salvation, no, but he certainly wasn't in right relationship. He was not enjoying and experiencing life with God or for God. And he lost sight of the things that bring God pleasure and that Jonah actually had a dignifying role to play in it. The point is that we don't merely take a knee, say some words, and then wait for death so we can finally be in heaven. No. This life is about us being conformed to the image of the Son of God, and sometimes that requires drastic experiences. I think Jonah stepped on the dry land and was literally white as snow from having spent three days in maritime gastric acids. Bleached from the experience, he was changed. And so it should bring a convicting question to mind. Am I closer now to Christ than I was one year ago? Am I closer to Christ now than I was five years ago, 10 years ago? Students, young people, children that are here, plan your life for Christ-likeness and growth therein. Plan it now. Look around at the rest of us. For many of us, we're, we're flickering. We're running out of time. But plan early and often to grow ever increasingly in Christ's likeness. God is worth that. Third point, and it's the most theologically rich one, so brace yourselves. It goes like this. You smell like fish puke. I didn't figure that would get a rounding applause. And I love you. What a blessing and what a grace. It's good to be reminded that we all smell like fish puke. Perhaps that's another way of saying that it's impossible to be arrogant when standing at the foot of the cross. I am that lousy, but I'm also that loved. It's another way of being reminded of preaching a little sermon to our own soul that there is nobody that I have the right to disdain or feel superior to. Nobody. And that's the invitation to all of us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In a sense, he has vomited all of us onto the beach, white as snow, to walk in newness of life. Now, I mentioned earlier that this is the central thrust of the Bible, and it shows up often. And if you understand that interpretive key, it'll help us to understand our Bibles more and more wondrously and, see, and also see more clearly what God is like and what he's done. So let me connect some dots. I want to flip back. Jonah's about 760 B.C., very, very, very briefly, I want to flip back about another 750 years. I want you to see this is God's pattern of dealing with people. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Just a couple quick verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is ending his ministry, his leadership with the people of Israel. Remember, Jonah is the encapsulation, the personification of the people of Israel. But before that, it was Israel, the nation who was supposed to go into all the world being a light of God's love. Watch what happens in Deuteronomy chapter 30, just these first three verses. He says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, God says, and you call them to mind among all the nations, 
where the Lord your God has driven you. Do you hear that? Moses predicts it. You're going to get run out of the land. Israel, you're going into the belly of a fish. You're going to go into the belly of the fish. It's going to happen. And when you return to the Lord your God and your children and obey his voice and all that I commanded you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Remember, Jonah says, you did this. Moses predicts you're going to get run out of the land. You're going to deny your God. You're going to remove him from the center of your soul and you will get run out. Sure enough, it happens. 722 BC, the Assyrians finally do come down and they eradicate the 10 northern tribes of Israel. 586 BC, the Babylonians come in. They take care of the two southern tribes of Judah. Oh, they come back after several hundred years, but it isn't long before the Persians rule them again and then the Greeks rule them again and then the Romans rule them again and finally in AD 70, the temple is torn down. Not one stone stands on another. And for almost 2,000 years, Israel, the people, we're swimming around in the belly of a fish, you might say, out of the land because of disobedience, because of refusal to call upon the name of the Lord. But in 1948, you might say, the fish spits them back on dry land. And they have not, like Jonah, had a conversion experience. There's a man named Charles Feinberg. Charles Feinberg used to be a seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Later, he went and uh, taught at Talbot. And in 1951, Charles Feinberg, who was Jewish, but also a Christian, professor at an evangelical seminary, Charles Feinberg, a Jewish believer, wrote this about Israel in 1951. One of the greatest commentaries on the minor prophets ever you can find is Charles Feinberg. This is what he says. This is three years after Israel comes back into the land. He says, beyond all things else, Israel needs to learn today the great pronouncement of the prophet Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. Feinberg's right. The people of Israel know that they are in perilous times. They know that hostile forces are arrayed against them on every side. They know how diabolical the enemy can be in his persecutions but they do not know that salvation is of the Lord. They are looking for deliverance in the political sphere, hoping against hope that the nations of the world may be able to solve their problems. They are seeking deliverance in the social sphere, trusting that education and social culture will curb the hostile desires of their own sworn enemies. They are seeking deliverance in the military sphere, attempting at long last to take up the cudgel on their behalf. But these and a thousand other devices are all unavailing. Deliverance, safety, and salvation can be Israel's only through the Lord. And this salvation is imparted through the person and work of one alone, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. Close quote. Whew. The message to Israel is the message to us. We tend to cling to devices, to false, empty nothings, for deliverance. But the little book of Jonah is showing us the master theme of Scripture and how it has played out in so many ways as God works to redeem for himself a people. The Messiah of Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has done what the nation could not. His name, Jesus, Yeshua, of course, it means God is salvation. So this book points us to him. Israel was cast out and thrown down. Jonah was cast out and thrown down. And finally, Jesus 
himself, the sendable self of the Godhead Trinity, he himself was cast down and thrown out so that we would never have to be. We're reminded and persuaded all over again that salvation belongs to the Lord. We bring no merit, we bring no worth of our own. We cling and we clutch to grace. And so I invite you to do what I have done this week, and I have a little expression for it from the panhandle. I apologize. It goes like this. Get downwind from yourself. For long enough, for plenty long enough, to really appreciate the depths of which you're capable and the extent to which God will go to rescue you. And so may our love for him and for one another increase. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you for leading us through the event and the process in which we have right relationship with you. And when we think it's not enough, would you convict us by your word, by your spirit, by your people, by truth to call out with whatever breath we have in our lungs for salvation. Oh, we are saved. And yet, Father, we are always in need of spiritual transformation. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who has been in a season of dryness, of trying to go to proverbial Spain, that you will drag them back because of your love. And they will speak with someone they know or love or trust about emerging from that fish, washed white as snow, with purpose. To tell others about the goodness and the grace of God as he bestows unmerited favor as an unobligated giver. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is still trying to either simply attain to some level of secular standards or is simply trying to perform their way into your favor, would you give them the gospel? Would they believe it? Would you convict them to speak with someone they know and love and trust as well? For all of us, Father, would you remind us of your, desperate, of your desperation to be involved in our lives, that we would live our lives like you are there because you are and you love us, and you are for us. And so, Father, we pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen.